And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, that's Pontius Pilate, by the way, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And notice this, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but notice, but some doubted. And so Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Now, before I get into this, I just want, let's just stop and be quiet for a minute. Do you hear that? Pounding against the roof and walls of this building? Aren't you just thankful for a wood structure to be inside of so that we're not all getting soaked right now? Aren't you just thankful just a little bit? All right, so I want you to take that because tonight, this morning, I want to talk about in 2019, for you and I, for us as a church, being joyful evangelists in 2019. So one last time, all right? It's the first Sunday of January. It's the first Sunday of 2019. We're only six days removed from New Year's, only two weeks removed from Christmas. So one last time, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, all right? Now, what I want you to do, though, is think about, because some of you still have your trees up, some of you have taken them down, my wife found a reason to keep the tree up for another couple of days. But <laughs> exactly. All right? I want you to think about some of the things that you got. What's that one gift that you got? I, we had coffee with Paul and Jennifer out at Second Cup yesterday, and almost the first thing Paul asked us when we sat down was, so what would you get for Christmas? And then we asked them what they did, and so on and so forth, and you get back and forth with these things. And most times when you've met people for the last couple of weeks, how, did you, how was Christmas for you? What did you do? What was your favorite gift? How or what was your favorite time spent? Obviously, for Debbie and I, we had another grandchild come into our lives. So that is something we're going to talk about for many Christmases to come, Lord willing. Right? Maybe for some of you, you're thinking about how you spent your time on either Christmas Eve, or sorry, Boxing Day, or New Year's Eve, watching Canada fail miserably at the World Junior Hockey Championships. Some of you might be Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys fans, 
And here you go, I knew Russell is, and are rejoicing because they somehow snatched a loss out of the jaws of victory last night, all right? But, but you ever notice whether it's Christmas or your sports team, your political thing, or a family event or something like that, you find it easy to talk about it, to tell other people about it, to just be spontaneous with it. So here we are. 2018 is gone. Can you believe it? The older I get, the faster time seems to go. You can't get one day of 2018 back. Not one. And we're already six days into 2019. And Jennifer made mention of it. I wonder how many New Year's resolutions are still intact only six days in. So let me ask you guys, what will the new year be like for you? What would you want 2019 to be like? It's something I did this year. On New Year's Day, I went down into my office and I took a fresh new journal and I wrote out what were the things that highlighted my year last year, both in successes and failures, promises made that weren't kept or promises made that were, And then on another fresh sheet of paper, I wrote the word, the number, 2019. And what I was hoping 2019 would be like for me, for me and Debbie, for our family, for us as a church. You see, what will 2019 be like for our church, for Calvary Baptist Church? What should we want it to be like? If I were to survey the entire congregation, all of you that are members of this church or adherents of this church, and asked you to write out, what do you think 2019 should look like for Calvary Baptist, what would you write? I've been reading and praying about myself and my family and our church and how we're doing, what we're good at, what we're struggling with. Because believe it or not, right, over the last month we've been talking about how we are 25 years old now as a church. 25 years old. We're in our 26th year as a church. In some cases, the church is now an adult, albeit a young adult. And like young adults, we have stories and events, ups and downs, successes and failures. Oh, there's lessons learned and many not learned. We've had folks come into and out of our lives like any church would. And like any young adult that's 25, we have hopes and dreams and wishes. But we've also got lots to learn and lots to do yet as a church. You see, 25, I don't know about the rest of you that are older or 25 or older, but if you're like me, 25 is also that age when maybe for the first time in your life, you take stock of your life. Because now you're a quarter of a century. It's one of those first real milestones that you get to in your age climbing as you go through it. It's that first time where you go, what have I done with my life thus far? Or what kind of things am I going to do? Or where am I headed to? Or where do I want to go? You see, 25 is also that time when you might decide or notice, I'm a little off course. Or what I thought I wanted, what I thought I liked, even loved, is not what I thought it would be. It might be good for us as a church to ask some questions, to take stock of where we are, to resolve, maybe to reaffirm, 
and even reset some things so that we know we are moving towards Christ as a church. We're being like Christ as a church. We're functioning as the kind of church the Word of God tells us to be. And so with that in mind, here's my one big question for us all this morning. What should our reaction be to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? I heard you sing. Now, I'm not, this is not in all a, a commentary on the music of this today, but I did notice that the music started low and kind of started to keep, creep up the hill. Every song, everybody started, started to sing a little bit more. But when we got to Stronger, I don't know what it is about that song, whether it's the words of it, the melody of it, the way it's constructed, but I could really hear you sing that song. You could hear the enthusiasm. You could hear the passion. You could tell that you were doing See, what's the answer to this question that's on the screen? Should it be our reaction or our response should be hope? Joy? Peace? Now, maybe some of you think, okay, so now he's quoting Galatians 5. Don't don't worry, I'm not going to go there. I'll let Daniel handle that when he gets there eventually in Galatians. But let me ask this question a little bit differently that's on the screen. Does the Bible actually tell us that there should be a response to the gospel. Should you and I actually have a response to the gospel? And see, I would like to put forth an answer for us early in 2019, and here is my answer. It should be joyful amazement and joyful declaration of what Jesus Christ has and is doing in our lives. That should be what defines us as a church. A joyful declaration, a joyful amazement of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. When was the last time you and I counted our blessings to what God has done? When we've really thought about it. I don't know if you follow me on Facebook or not, but on Friday I put this quote by Charles Spurgeon that I love. He says, those who are the beloved of the Lord must be the most happy and joyful people to be found anywhere upon the face of the earth. Do you believe that? Anybody? Anyone? Amen? Amen? I got a couple of, you know, casual ones. You see, I think some of you are afraid to say amen because I'm looking at some of your faces right now. All right, And as the cathedral quartet guy used to say, y'all look like you've been hit in the face with a dead rabbit or something. All right, like Sometimes it's hard, and sometimes we think joy means an artificial happiness. Because for some of you, you have gone through trials and hardships. Steve prayed about this, and yet you're like, Steve, you're up here on the first Sunday, way to go. You're all charged up and emotional, telling us all to be happy Christians, but you don't know what my life is like. Well, maybe I don't know what your life personally is like, but I'm not up here to say my life is perfect. And therefore, I mean some joy or some happiness that detaches itself from the realities of life. What I am saying is that we get a sense of deep, profound happiness and joy that you know what? This life is temporary and I have something eternal. And God is walking with me. You see, my deepest desire for this church on this first Sunday of 2019 is to encourage all of us with the gospel of Jesus. It's to get us to be honest about our approach to sharing Christ with those around us. 
And maybe more than that, it's to get us to be excited and joyful in the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with others this year. I've been around Christianity, evangelical Christianity, since I was five years old. I'll be 47 in just a few days. So for 42 years, I've been around evangelical Christianity. And I can put on this hand how many sermons or devotions or prayer meetings or camps or retreats I've been at where pastors or speakers have actually told a church to be excited about the Lord that is not manufactured or packaged. Almost all of I've heard has always been, here's five steps to this, or three steps to that, or two steps to this. See, what would 2019 look like when it comes to spreading the good news for us as a people? So let me ask you this. Jesus saves, yes? Okay, I'm just checking. If you believe that, then if Jesus saves, then that must mean, follow with me now, that people need saving. Yes? All right. So let's rehearse Christmas. Jesus being born to die means that we needed someone to come and die for us because we are the ones that are dying and deserve to die. Let me dig into that. If you and I really get the gospel... Let me give you the bad news. If we really get the gospel, it means we understand, and not only do we understand, we admit, we own the horrible, tragic, but true reality, that is, we are totally undeserving of anything good. We should not get God's mercy or grace. We should not be given life or forgiveness or heaven or eternal life with Christ or any of this. In fact, if we got what we deserved, we would actually get death Hell, eternal separation from God, that, my friends, is what we deserve. Now, that's awkward, not popular, and not easy to say. But, let me turn the coin. If you and I get the gospel... We also understand it's the declaration where God's holiness and mercy and grace come together and it's a gloriously means that God so loved and loves us. Amen? That's the truth from eternity past to this very day and for eternity future and that is proven by this very fact. Listen, Jesus came. He was born. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect, innocent, spotless, sinless death as a sacrifice on our behalf. He calls us to Himself. He declares His love toward us. And if and when you and I confess our sins we own our unworthiness and we ask Jesus for His forgiveness, He then generously and lavishly bestows His righteousness and His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness and His love and His redemption onto us. But wait, there's more. He not only wipes away our sin and the slate is now clean, He makes us perfect before God, but He also gives us all of His righteousness. He guarantees that we are saved by filling us with His Spirit Spirit, God the Father adopts us as His sons and daughters, and we are forever and eternally right with God. Amen? Then act like it. 
act like it. Now I know, okay, wait a second, that sounds a little harsh. I get it. Especially for a sermon titled The Joy of Evangelism. Okay, here's what I mean. Brothers and sisters, family and friends, if we have experienced the gospel, then it fills us with joy and we are free and we are forgiven and we have peace and we have purpose and we know what life is about, where it's headed and what is after this life. And so now death is not our master. We are no longer slaves to sin. Satan has no power or control over us. And Jesus not only did all this for us, but now we can pray. And God gave us his word. And we are sealed and filled with the spirit of God. And we are chosen by God to share what he has done with those around us. Amen? Uh, See, that amen was a lot softer than the one earlier. Because I think now you're starting to put two and two together. You see, all too often, here's what I find fascinating in my life and in the life of this church, is that we act like God commanded us to do something we don't know how to do. When he tells us to be witnesses, I find that in my conversations, it's like, Steve, Steve, like, I I get it. I know it's in the Bible somewhere, but man, this is not easy. We also tend to think in terms of doing something so as to get results. So we think about, let's have an event, let's have a program, let's do a special service, let's do this or do that, and then we measure it by how many came, or, or did it, was it well attended, or did everybody ooh and ah at it? Well, I will tell you this, as a pastor, everywhere I go as a pastor, if I meet other pastors, or I meet friends who I haven't seen in a long time, and they t- tell them I'm a pastor, and this is the church, what's the first thing they ask me? Tell me. Huh? Say it. Say it out loud. How big is your church? Exactly. That's the first thing everybody wants to How big? How many people go to your church? I never get asked, how many people love Jesus in your church? How many people are transformed by the gospel in your church? How many marriages are reflecting Christ in your church? I always get asked, how many people? And you know what the second question is? How much money does everybody give? How big's your budget? Are you building something? Have you started something? But that's not what we're called to do. You see, as we begin 2019, and as Calvary Baptist Church starts the next 25-year journey, Lord willing, of life, this passage of Matthew declares the joy of evangelism. Actually, it's better, the joy of discipleship. And that's what church should be, and it is our focus for 2019. And I don't mean the latest fad. I don't mean passing out tracts, coming up with a new method, a new Bible study, or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. What Jesus calls us to and what we are desperately in need of in our church in 2019 is this. The absolute bursting forth of pleasure it is to tell others what Jesus has done in our lives. That's what we're called to. With all of your mess, with all your trials, have you noticed it? Why is it? I've known Jennifer now for quite some time specifically over the last four years. Jennifer's told me all kinds of things. Been out on double dates with Jeff and Jennifer, been over to their home. Jennifer's been on committees with me. She does the music I've talked with. But why is it 
that her talking about being thankful for a toilet has just stuck with my head. Have you ever thought about that? I'm friends with so many of you. And you might be shocked that the story that sticks with me is not some fancy manufactured testimony, but when you were just off guard, being real, going, the Lord just worked. That's, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. That, my friends, is what I pray we will all get this coming year, to be freed from guilt and programs and ideas of our own intelligence and ingenuity, but totally committed to simply saying, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. That's what we're called to, and that's what this passage is all about. I want you to notice some of the background with me this morning. Did you notice, (coughs) excuse me, in verses 11 11 to 15, did you see what was read there? Did you notice what Matthew includes? Because after they realize Jesus is alive, and he says greetings in verses 9 and 10, and do not be afraid, then Matthew gives us this little commercial as to what's going to happen in between that event and the Great Commission, where we're told here's how the world is not only going to respond, but how they're going to react to the resurrection. And so we're told, basically, that culture is going to deny Jesus rose from the dead. They're going to lie shamelessly to keep people from accepting Jesus as Lord. So it's in the midst of this persecution, this denial, this cultural pressure that these disciples lived, and the next verses are written 16 to 20. And that's helping us, you and I, to relate to a 21st century culture. Things are no different. Oh, maybe there's more social media, so the denial and the, and, and the lies can shamelessly be plugged quicker. But the attitude of the human race has always been the same. So in the midst, in verses 16 to 20, notice, in the midst of worshiping, and it says, but some doubted, <clears throat> Jesus comes and says something with power and authority in verse 16. And its intent was to cause hope and confidence, especially with the narrative of 11 to 15 for you. Do you know how far the culture went to devalue Christians, even in the first century? We're going to celebrate the Lord's table in just a few minutes. Do you realize that in the first century, to discredit Christians and Christianity, the world would say that because they celebrate the Lord's table, Christians were cannibals. They, they sent a rumor around that, that these people would, would, would eat human flesh. Do you know how unpopular that would make you in the modern culture? Now fast forward 2,100 years almost, and today, now the culture says, if you have values or you believe the Bible and what it says, then you're labeled as a narrow-minded bigot. Or you're phobic, and just add whatever word onto phobia you want to, to put onto it. Or you're judgmental. Or you just hate someone. You're being judgmental and you're hating someone because you stand for truth. But yet here we are in our passage. Matthew's been showing us that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is gonna, he's the heir of the throne of David. And you'll notice that Jesus keeps a muzzle on his disciples if you actually do a study of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Matthew says... These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. 
So it was like, don't tell everybody, just tell some people. Jesus seems to put restrictions on who the disciples can share the gospel with. Next in Matthew 16, when he would ask Peter, who am I and who do men say that I am? He says there, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, and I tell you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and so on and so forth. But at the end of it, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So it almost seems like this is the opposite of what I'm saying. Next, in the very next chapter, chapter 17 of Matthew, when Jesus is transfigured before Peter and James and John, and they're coming down from the mountain, they've now seen Jesus unveil his flesh and show them that he is truly the second person of the Trinity, and they are revved up, but as they're coming down, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is, notice, raised from the dead. Over and over again, Jesus would give them a message and then tell them, say nothing. He does it in Luke and he does it in all other places. And so it would seem that many of us today and the church in general today might be tempted to think that we're still operating under that mandate. I'm glad I've got it. I'm glad I found some people that have it. But listen, we don't have to tell people that much. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not be offensive. Let, let's not dare risk some, some awkward conversations or moments. But you've got to realize that after all this commanding to be quiet, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested, he's crucified, and he's buried. Now, do you remember just how devastating that was to his disciples? They were shocked. They were discouraged. They were disheartened. They seriously thought about quitting. Not to mention the fact that they were afraid. They felt all alone. In fact, Matthew and Mark tells us all of them had a crisis of faith. But then Jesus comes back to life. The resurrection happens and it happened. The one and only and on, the one and the only time in all of human history that a person was killed and died of himself, because Luke tells us he gave up his life, and then of himself came back to life. And Calvary, listen to me, I know we just celebrated the birth of Jesus, but you have to remember he was born to die. And you need to also remember that it's the resurrection miracle that still to this day shocks the entire world and changes everything. And over the next 40 days in Matthew, Jesus would appear before his disciples. He'd bring comfort and peace. He would store relationships. And then he would give them all a mission. And that mission was given to you and I. And that's what he does in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And it's the joy of release that Jesus gives here. Because in the midst of worship and doubt, he gives them perspective. And so what are you and I this year to do with this joyful commission? What are we going to do? Well, let me give you some practical things and let's, let's participate in the table of the Lord. Number one, this year, trust in the Great Commission. Trust in it. Trust in it. Jesus said he had the authority. You see, back in Matthew 11, he said that God had passed all things over to him, but then he died. 
But now he's risen from the dead, the conqueror over death and Satan and sin. And Jesus declares all authority, not some of it, not most of it. All authority is mine. And throughout Matthew, you'll see Jesus' authority displayed. He uses his words to command nature. He uses his words over demons. He uses his words to forgive sin and perform miracles. But now Jesus says something more than just power. Now I have position. It's not just that I'm powerful, I'm in the right position. He's now sitting on the throne of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ, who once gave up his power and position, who once passed over his power to others, now has power and authority over them. And man, that should just thrill us all here this morning. So trust in the Great Commission. Secondly, go live it. Trust it and live it. The risen Lord, His universal authority, makes possible the universal mission. What Jesus said here assured those worshiping, doubting disciples, hey, I'm in control. I am sovereign over all things. This is where Romans 8 kicks in. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And because Jesus says go, we can be assured of success, which means a harvest. You see, folks, listen. We should be witnesses not to get results, but because we know we've been promised results. That's why you witness. That's why I want us to be a church that invites people to church this year. That's why I want you to share your faith with your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers and your fellow students, not because you're going to ring the bell and go, hey, I got another one, but no, just because, man, Jesus told me to trust him and he told me to do it, so I'm just doing it. And I promise you this, you trust in it and you go live it, God will do stuff. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now let me remind you what this means. Because that word witness, that's a unique word. The word in the Greek means to testify, but it actually means to personally testify. What Jesus is saying, you will be my witnesses. In other words, you will declare, this is what Jesus has done to me. You don't have to convince people to believe in Jesus. You don't have to convince people that Jesus is God. I've told you this story. One of the most powerful videos I've ever watched on YouTube was a debate between a a pastor named Mark Driscoll a guy named Deepak Chopra, and this other bishop fella, and then this woman who leads a ministry in Las Vegas. Are you ready for this ministry? Here's the title of it, Hookers for Jesus. And this was a woman who was a prostitute in Las Vegas who God gloriously saved. And if you watch this hour and a half video, you will watch the pastor and Deepak Chopra and this bishop argue all of the final points of theology, and they get into all of these things, and they're almost condescending to this woman over here. And there's this one exchange where Deepak Chopra gets into it with this woman, and all she says, she says, well, I don't know about all of your philosophy, but I know this. I was once a prostitute. I was used by men. I know what it is to be raped and have a man sit on my chest, and then Jesus came into my life and saved me and gave me purpose and meaning, and now I 
I live for Him, and I love Him because I know I'm loved by Him, and I will serve Him until I die because He is the only one that's ever shown me respect and dignity and integrity and given me purpose for life. And guess what? Deepak Chopra was just stunned. There is no response to a genuine testimony. So I don't want you to fret and worry. Do I have all the right things to say? Simply tell people what Jesus has done in your life. Paul is a great example of this. In in 1 Timothy he said, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate His extraordinary patience as an example of those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a pretty simple testimony. And so, trust it, live it, and then folks, listen, go teach it. Go teach it. That's our passage teaching them to observe, that is to live out. That, my friends, is far more than simply passing out a track or getting someone to say a prayer. That means for us as a church in 2019, we've got to be this, a people who will focus on our relationship with Christ and others, inviting people to come along and join us, watching us do life and ministry, answering questions and throwing, showing through witness and testimony what it means to be changed by Jesus. I've asked this leading up to Christmas, and I'll ask it again post-Christmas. I don't know how many of you have done it. I've done it twice this Christmas, where I've sat down and I've watched Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. That movie was played over and over again on television. In fact, I noticed at the mall, even at the theaters, they, they replayed it for people that just needed to go to the theaters to experience a theater experience, but wanted to catch a Christmas movie. But have you ever asked yourself, why is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol such a classic? What gives it such a lasting power? It's not that Scrooge starts telling people to observe Christmas. It's that he observes Christmas. That's the testimony. It's not that he starts telling everybody how to live and what to do. It's that he's different. That's what catches everybody off guard. And our Bible is full of examples of this. And so how has Jesus changed my life? And then finally, we need to go knowing that Jesus is with us. So trust in it, go with it, live it, teach it, and then go. He says, lo, I am with you always. Do you ever realize Matthew started his gospel the way he ended it? God with us. Emmanuel. God with us us. All the days, Jesus is with us. Every day, everywhere, He sends us to go to the whole world as witnesses with the joyful confidence that we can't fail because Jesus doesn't fail. And did you notice what I said? The Great Commission is meant to arouse joy and expectation. You know how I know that? In Luke 24, the parallel passage of this, listen to these words. Then He led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up His hands and He blessed them And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Notice, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let me give you just some examples. 
You remember what John the Baptist did in the womb of his mother Elizabeth when she, he simply heard that Mary was present? He leaped in her womb. Remember Mary's Magnificent, her song of praise when she found out she would give birth to Jesus? Do you remember how shepherds joyfully went about telling everybody and wise men with great joy went back to the east? Do you remember how Jeff talked about Simeon had the joy of the Lord when he finally saw Emmanuel as a baby and Anna? You've seen it with Paul and Matthew and James and John. And people for 2,000 years have been joyfully exclaiming, I met Jesus and here's what he did. To put it in the modern vernacular, they did their Lotto 649 happy dance. And this is what you and I are called. In 2019, we're called to be witnesses. We're to declare, here's what Jesus has done in my life. And so as we come to the table of the Lord, how? How are you and I going to do this? Are you ready for this? I have thought for days on this profound thought. I want you to be shocked and amazed at how profound this is going to be. Do you want to be joyful witnesses in 2019? It won't be on the screen. Let me just tell you. Number one, know Christ. In other words, read His Word. I was telling Derek, I've just started reading chronologically through the Bible this year and invited some of you along for that journey and we're into the book of Job. I cannot tell you how Job has been rocking my world. I, I just, I, I've been like, I've read Job many times, but it's been a long time since I read it. And I was like, Steve, why are you not reading this book more often? With the junk of the 21st century, you know what the antidote is? Go read Job. You got to know Christ. By the way, secondly, prayer. Prayer. Pray to God. And if you know Christ by reading His Word and you pray to Christ, then thirdly, it's holiness. Seek to be like Him. And then finally, it's a commitment to a church. This church. You're not here by accident. Will you be committed to church? To love and to serve and to give and to participate and to be a part of things. It's with joy we do this because it's personal. Jonathan Edwards put it like this, when a poor lost soul is brought home to Christ, it will take up a whole eternity to express and declare the greatness of that love. See, the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, is not just some song of nostalgia and fame. Again, do you know why it's powerful? Do you know why people sing it and stop and listen to it? Because it's actually a testimony of someone who was radically transformed by Jesus. That's what gives it its power. So for you and I, as we come to the table of the Lord, what will your testimony be? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What's your story going to be? What's your life song going to be? Hey, I once thought I was good enough, but now I trust only in Jesus. Hey, I once pursued money and acceptance, but now I lean on Jesus and know He accepts me. I once fought for power, but now I submit to the power of Jesus. I once trusted in my church or good deeds or even my brand of religion, but now I've given up on religion. I've stopped trying to impress God and I just lean on the everlasting arms of Jesus. I once tried to find purpose and pleasure in a bottle or a pill or a needle or a bed or myself or the praise of another, but now I have peace with God and the peace of God and that my value and identity and purpose are found always and only in Jesus. 
I once tried to control my life and my circumstances and people, but now I give up my life to the one who gives me life. I once thought to be great, but now I seek to reflect Jesus who is the greatest of all. I was once looking for meaning in marriage or family or a job or a degree, but now Jesus gives me meaning and those things are gifts to be enjoyed, not idols to bow before and be a slave to as we sang, Lord have mercy. So what will your testimony be in 2019? There's a program on TV called, right now called How the Lottery Changed My Life. I would like to know in 2019, how has Jesus changed our lives? And so my prayer this year is that we'll be a church that is not focused on man-made attempts at evangelism or man-made programs to impress others or ourselves, but to be disciples of Christ and to disciple the world for Christ. And if we do that, that will be truly amazing grace.